Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I just want to start off by saying thank you to everyone who came out to both the Orpheum Museum and the Wild Ones Talk up in Rockford, Illinois. I had a blast speaking with it and meeting with you all. It was such a great experience, and what a wonderful turnout. It was really inspiring to see that many people caring about botany and especially the use of native plants. So thanks again. It was uh, great to talk with you. That's a reminder to anyone I'm available from time to time for speaking events. If you ever want to hear a presentation from a botanical nerd like myself, just shoot me an email and we'll try to work something out with my schedule. All right, what do I have for you this week? This was an awesome conversation. I'm really excited I got to have it. And I owe this one to Aaron Welsh from This Podcast Will Kill You. So thanks, Erin, for setting this one up. This is a friend of hers that she met because she also does work in Panama. But today we're joined by Peter Marting. He's a PhD student at Arizona State University, and he specializes in collective conscious behavior of animals. So what's he doing on the podcast, you might be asking? Well, he does this in context of a plant that hires ants as bodyguards. Now, there's a lot of different species of plants that have done this, but... Peter's system revolves around cercropia trees in the rainforests of Panama. And it's really fascinating work. And he goes deeper with it than I ever expected. I mean, I did not know the system was as complex as it is. I thought it was a simple, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But as you'll hear, Peter's discovered some incredible things. And uh, yeah, I don't want to steal any of his thunder. But before we get to that conversation, got a few orders of business to take care of first. Stickers are still for sale. Indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Go check them out. They're $3. It's the Indefensive Plants logo. And 50% of that purchase goes to orchid conservation efforts here in North America. So if you want a cool sticker that's waterproof, you can pretty much put it anywhere. And you want to benefit orchid conservation efforts and really ecosystem conservation efforts at the same time, head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash shop and check those out. Of course, those proceeds are going to the North American Orchid Conservation Center make sure you check them out as well. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast and you would like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we have going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself kickbacks like stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to get a little bit more in return, you can even get yourself a producer credit on this show. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Clifton, Tim, Lisa, Susanna, Homestead Brooklyn, Daniela, Brody, Kevin, Sophia, Plant by Design, Mark, Katharina, Sammy and Sven, Renz, Bendix, Erene, Holly, Mountain Misery Farms, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, and Margie. So thank you to everyone who has given this far. It means the world to me, and it's going such a long way and keeping In Defense of Plants up and running. Hosting a podcast can get a little expensive from month to month, so that helps. And as you'll find out in the next couple of months, a little bit extra goes into making even more exciting botanical adventures that you all get to benefit from, so please stay tuned for that. All right, that's enough out of me. Let's go learn about ants and their tree hosts. It's pretty fascinating, so join me and Peter for this conversation. I hope you enjoy Sure thing. So my name is Peter Marting. 
and I'm a PhD student at Arizona State University in Stephen Pratt's lab, which is an animal behavior collective intelligence lab, mostly studying social insects, bees and ants and stuff like that. Awesome. I love the idea of collective intelligence, and it's cool to have someone on the podcast representing that, but what does that have to do with plants? Oh, funny you should ask. So I'm really interested in a specific species of ants called in the genus Azteca, and they actually live in and protect Cecropia trees. So I'm actually studying this mutualism uh, where the plants provide shelter and food and the ants provide protection. I Really, the ants are only half the story. The other half of the story is the plants. So Awesome. I'm here for I'm here for both teams. <laughs> I like that. Now, did you get into this because you were more of a Ento person? Did you like insects more, or were you a plant person, or you just kind of like uh, nature and all of its glory? And this seems like a cool system. Well, yeah. I, to be honest, uh, I am more of a animal behavior background kind of guy. Uh, but this specific system that I landed on for my PhD was actually inspired by a trip that I went on to Peru, uh, it was my very first tropical field job. Uh, right after my undergrad, I worked on bird nesting behavior in Manu National Park, Peru nice. for about four months. Yeah. And while I was there, I recognized these really immaculate, beautiful trees there, uh, which were the Cecropia trees. And I was just in awe at their uh, aesthetic structure. I just thought they were really beautiful plants. At the time, I had no idea that they had a mutualism with ants because I never was able to get close enough uh, to actually see the ants. Uh, and it was to my surprise later when I was looking, w when I w entered a PhD program and was looking for um, really cool systems to answer some big questions I had about sociality and insects. Uh, that I found out, oh, wow, those Cecropia trees actually host Azteca ants in this really intimate, really interesting mutualism. And I was totally sold from there on. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So it was kind of a circuitous route, but it's it's neat that it was kind of based in your overall appreciation for the grandeur of these trees. And indeed, I mean, they're a stunning species. But for people that don't know what we're talking about here, what is a Cecropia tree? Is this a big genus? Is it a small thing? What do they kind of look like? Where do they fit in? Yeah, so they, the taxonomy has been um, a little back and forth. I think currently they're in the family Urticaceae. Oh. Yeah, and they're a pretty big genus, between 60 to 80 species described. And they have a really large range from southern Mexico to northern Argentina. So they're found all throughout the new tropics. They're, there's a closely related sister genus in Africa, but they're invasive in some other islands like Hawaii uh, but they're not really found in Australia or Southeast Asia or anything hmm. like that. Okay. But they have a big range in the neotropics, as they're called. And they're these really unique structures. They're, they're really easy to identify when you're walking through the forest to see one of these Cecropia trees. They're, they're very segmented because they, at the top of their tree, is where they always put out the new growth, the meristem. And with each new internode, which is a single segment, they put out a new leaf. And these are these giant radial leaves that are, could be 
maybe a foot or so in radius. So the, especially in these bigger trees and the, the petiole or the part of the tree that connects the stem to the leaf connects to the leaf right in the center. So it's this sort of palmate umbrella looking hmm. leaf. Um, and it's very radial, all the veins spread out from the center. And so these leaves grown out in sort of a whirl pattern up the tree. And each leaf has a li lifespan of about three months. Hmm. And then it uh, withers and falls off the tree. And so you get this nice structure as the tree grows. You, you sort of have a, a clump of leaves up at the top of the tree uh, that are sort of spread out, really distributing uh, how the sun falls on each leaf. So it's, it's this really striking sort of top-heavy looking <laughs> tree that sways in the breeze. Yeah, I can understand why it would capture the eye of someone that's like tuned into what's going on with the kind of shape of everything around them. Now, are these like yeah. fast-growing edge species? Are they understory species? Where do they fit in in the ecology of, uh, you know, Central and South America or just New World rainforests? Indeed, they are very fast-growing pioneer species, nice. uh, as they're called. So they colonize gaps and disturbed areas in the forest. They're light-loving species. They need light to really take off. So I've measured some growth rates of these trees over a few months, and I've found that some, some of my fastest-growing trees grew, on average, four millimeters per day. Whoa. So, I mean, that you could yeah. practically watch that thing grow. That's remarkable. Wow. Yeah. They can outgrow a human past six feet in well under a year. Easily, uh, no problem. the right conditions. Dang. Yeah. That's impressive. And yeah. I take it being a pioneer species, you know, you just kind of go into wherever humans have or any sort of disturbance has kind of done its thing. And, and you're probably not too far from one of these trees. Yeah, that's right. That makes it really convenient to study <laughs> in mass because... Anywhere there, where there's a population of humans in the tropical regions of Central or South America, there's going to be a cecropia tree there because to clear the land, to build the houses or the towns, the cecropia trees move right in and do very well in those areas. And in a more natural setting, uh, they, they really love landslides. So if you have a big landslide or a mudslide off of the slope of a mountain, the cecropia trees are the first things to move in. Hmm. So the, some people have sort of classically uh, distinguished ty uh, types of cecropia trees by whether they like large disturbed areas like a landslide or like a township, or if they prefer tighter gaps within a mature forest. So that would be like a single tree huh. falling down and a light hitting a patch of the forest. And then a, there can be seeds laying dormant in the soil for months or even years, uh, just waiting for trees to fall around them. And then when the light hits the soil, it changes the conditions and they germinate and they start sprouting right away. Wow. So overall, you've painted the picture of a very hardy species, it should be no surprise then that they can be considered invasive uh, where they don't occur yeah, naturally. Certainly. How are these seeds getting around? Uh, is it bird dispersed or just kind of wind or what? Yeah, so it is bird and bat dispersed. Oh. Um, they have these really distinguished looking fruits that hang down from the tops of the trees sort of where the leaves are coming out. And it depends on the species, but I, I think they kind of look like chicken feet. They're <laughs> sort of like gangly and, and droopy. And uh, the birds love them. They, they come land on the trees and, and eat the fruits, no problem. And 
and disperse them around. Oh, and another interesting thing is Cecropia is a dioecious genus. So meaning there's male and female plants. So uh, that's kind of a really interesting aspect of them too. Yeah, you wouldn't expect a species to be such a a pioneer and be dioecious at the same time. Normally that's like uh, they need both parts. That way one plant can get them going. But hmm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you also mentioned, you know, ants and and the social kind of hive mind mentality here. Where do they fit into this picture? What's going on with ants and Cecropia, or at least Azteca ants and Cecropia? Yeah, so like from the plant's perspective, it really takes a lot of investment to build these chemical compounds that protect the plants against herbivores. Uh, There's different classes of types of defense that a plant can invest in. They can make chemicals that... Uh, are really bitter or don't taste very well or, or even harmful to herbivores like katydids or grasshoppers that deter them, or they can invest in structural defenses. So that means like a lignin and other things that actually make the leaves tough to chew through. Mm. Like you can't, their jaws can't physically cut through the leaves. And then a third category that that's less common especially in the temperate zones, but is a little bit more widespread in the tropics is what they call biotic defenses. Okay. And so that's when they invest in rewards for bodyguards. So Cecropia trees, they invest in these Mullerian food bodies, they're called, which (laughs) they're these little patches of dense hairs at the base of each leaf that produce these little ovoid white blobs that the ants harvest and uh, they eat. So they're rich in glycogen and provide a good carbon source for the ants that then the ants harvest those and bring them inside the tree. And that motivates the ants to protect the tree against herbivores. So instead of the plant investing in a bunch of structural and chemical defenses, they invest more in rewards. Interesting. So are these rewards kind of concentrated in a specific area or do the ants, can they find them on any part of the tree? Uh, they are concentrated uh, basically at the base of each leaf. So each of these giant radial leaves will bear this patch called a trichelium, which is where all the food bodies grow out of. So the ants are sort of hanging out a lot around that area hmm. uh, at the base of the leaf where, the, where it meets the stem of the tree. The ba- Yeah, the base of the pedial. And then they also have these pearl bodies which are a different type of food body, apparently more rich in lipids. Okay. Uh, but there's not as much known about these, and they grow on the bottom of the leaves. All right. So I haven't seen those quite as often in person, uh, but I've definitely seen the food bodies. When the plants reach a certain age, they might not invest as much in pearl bodies. Maybe mm. it's just in early stages of the plant life, but I, I've struggled to actually see these. Hmm. That's really fascinating that they would kind of have the difference in these different bodies that they're creating, but also they appear in different spots on the plant. But you mentioned something back there that uh, it was quite interesting. You said bring it down inside the plant. So oh yeah, what's what's that all about? Another really interesting predisposition that the genus of Cecropia tree has to bearing ants inside of it, hosting ants, is that their stems are hollow. Huh. So. Each one of these new internodes that the plant grows opens up to be this really nice, big, hollow chamber, uh, sort of like bamboo. And the the ants chew inside of there. Each uh, 
internode is separated by a septum, so a really thin layer that separates the two internodes, and the ants can chew right through there, and they actually their entire colony lives inside of the tree uh, wow. and you, sort of uses the bark as sort of a protective layer from um, anything in the environment. So the queen will be in inside the tree, sitting in the center of the tree. All of the larvae and all the eggs and most of the workers will be inside of the tree. Wow, that's wild. So it's kind of like a you scratch my back, I scratch yours. They're giving them food and housing in, in return for protection, essentially, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's been actually becoming more clear that it's not just protection that the ants are providing, but they also give a little nitrogen boost to the plant. Okay. Because any of the, it's sort of a double benefit because not only are they deterring those herbivores like katydids and grasshoppers and caterpillars, but if the Azteca ants can, they will immobilize, capture, kill and dismember those (laughs) intruding herbivores and they'll actually chop them up into tiny pieces and bring them inside the colony and feed them to their larvae and eat them and then uh, they defecate what they don't eat or little pieces scraps of insects those actually get put into the plant uh, somehow Um, you can find traces of nitrogen from those insects in the plant up to a year later Wow. Are you serious? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So do they have a mechanism by which this happens or is that something you're still or anyone's really trying to work out exactly how that nitrogen goes from like a waste heap and the inside of these nodes to, you know, foliar nitrogen, so to say? Yeah, that that is a total open question. Uh, uh, there's it. been a few mechanisms proposed and my favorite involve a mediator. So something like a bacteria or a mm. fungus that lives in association only found in Cecropia trees where there's Azteca ants that acts as sort of a mediator of nitrogen between the two. Oh, man, that's cool. And I'm sure speculating on this is almost as fun as investigating it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I have a blast with these hypotheses. Yeah, that's great. So, okay, uh, how big are these colonies living in there? I I picture like a couple hundred ants here and there. or This is something that's where it's serious numbers. Yeah, so it's it can get pretty serious numbers. I have actually counted number of ants in 14 trees. And these <laughs> trees that I studied, I tried to control for the tree size because I was doing a experiment in collective behavior of those colonies. So I didn't want giant trees compared to tiny trees because, you know, likely the colony size would just be sort of responsible for any behavioral differences that I might see. Right. So anyway, between trees that are about two meters to eight meters tall, that was my range. Colony sizes varied from the smallest colony. I'm, I And I counted these by hand. So I, <laughs> th- this was actually a little bit of work. So to start off, it was a little heartbreaking because I was following these colonies and these trees for months. And then at the end of the study, I had to know whether or not the colony size would influence the behavior that I just measured. So I needed to know how many ants were living inside. So the only way to figure that out is to cut the trees down, Uh, open them up and uh, basically kill everybody and count them almost by hand, one by one. Wow. So anyway, the colony sizes varied from just under 2,000, maybe between 1,500 and 2,000 and 13,000 ants. So yeah, there were a lot. (laughs) 
in like if you totaled all of the ants in those 14 trees, there were 94,642 ants. So <laughs> I don't think I've ever counted that high. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Dang. Yeah, I did have some help. I had some help by with a, a very competent field assistant. So right. I definitely give her a lot of credit. Shout out to all field assistants everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Wow. So this is not an insignificant uh, set of bodyguards to hire right. for these plants. Thousands. Wow. So, okay, you're obviously kind of setting the standard for what we know about these trees, but where does your research fit in? I mean, if you're studying the collective mind of this, these organisms, what exactly kind of questions were you asking and, and, and what did you find out? Yeah, so I am really curious about actually behavioral variation. I'm really interested in quantifying how animals behave consistently over time and differently from one another. I'm really interested in does this idea of personality, if you will, <laughs> animal personality, exist at the collective level, at the level of the colony, sort of thinking about ant colonies as single functioning superorganisms? Do superorganisms display personalities like a lot of other animals have? And so that was my main question. And then if they do, how are they shaped? What causes some colonies to be more bold aggressive, and other colonies to be shy, reserved, and cautious. What's driving those trends, and what are the consequences for its mutualistic partner, the Cecropia tree? Right on. So you're, you, you mentioned in our email correspondence that you're at the writing stage. So I'm assuming you have some data to report on that. What, what kind of things are you finding, or at least do you have hints of things that you might be figuring out? Yeah, absolutely. So I've found that, indeed, colonies do have collective personalities um, that are very distinct from one another and very consistent across time. That's wild. So, and it had, and here's the other cool thing. It has nothing to do with colony size. Huh. So you can have a big colony that's really aggressive and you can have a huge colony that's also really mild and timid and docile. And then you can have a small colony that's super rambunctious and aggressive. And you can have a small colony that's uh, really mild, too. So it, it, it all all orders of magnitude across huh. all sizes of colonies. That's really neat. And, and did you have to pretend to be the herbivore and subject yourself to massive ant attacks in order to figure <laughs> this out? Yes. Oh. Yes. It, uh, it, it was a regular occurrence. But it was almost like an addiction after a while. It's like I it was almost like a cup of coffee in the morning. I needed my ant attack to really get me going in the morning. So, yeah, it, it was uh, it, it became a problem. Obviously, when I left the field, I was having withdrawals from all kinds of things. But oh, that was one. but yeah. So so the different behaviors I looked at were what I call vibrational disturbance, okay. which was simulating some sort of big herbivore like a vertebrate, like a sloth or a woodpecker or something attacking the tree that will really shake the tree. And so that I used a, I actually, because I can't shake the tree or flick the tree with reasonable consistency throughout a whole field season, uh, I built a little robot that basically does it for me. Jeez. delivers constant force and, and uh, timing okay. intervals. It's the power of innovation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I call it the flickomatic. <laughs> Uh, did you get any, uh, patent calls on that one? Uh, I haven't yet, right, but well. I did publish a diagram of it in my recent paper that I published last month. Nice. So it's out there. If anybody wants to build it, you can right. look up my paper. 
There you go. That's called Colony Personality and Plant Health in the Azteca Cecropia Mutualism. Open source flickomatic. I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. So that, that was one behavior. Okay. Another one, uh, I was interested in how they respond to leaf damage. And this is, this is probably my favorite robust behavior that you can see in Azteca ants. Basically, what I did was I had a little paper hole puncher, really mm -hmm. simple, one-hole punch. And I punched six holes at the end of one of the leaves, and I videotaped that. Hmm. And what happens is ants are generally patrolling the surface of the tree, and a patroller will discover that leaf damage. And something in a chemical, a volatile chemical in the consistency of the plant sap will alarm that ant. And the ant will sort of run in circles to try and evaluate the scope of the damage. And then she will use the veins of the leaf on the underside as little highways to run back as fast as she can to the petiole and then all the way down the petiole to the main stem and then into one of the nearest entrances. And she will rally the troops. And she all along had been dotting a line of recruitment pheromone. Um, and so the ants inside the tree sense that puff of alarm pheromone that the ant has released. And then they will, there'll be this surge of ants from in, within the inside of the tree out to that specific site of the damage on the tree leaf. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. So not only are they kind of responding to just jostling like you'd expect from, like you said, a larger herbivore messing around with the tree, but being able to kind of understand small damages and that, you know, like you said, kind of understanding the magnitude of those damages and then recruiting back to that spot. That's incredible. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of the most amazing things to watch unfold because yeah. you can really, if you have a good camera and are able to follow, because these ants are pretty small, I would say maybe two to three millimeters. Mm -hmm. But if you have a nice macro lens, you can follow these ants and really get detailed information about all the dynamics that are going on as she's interacting with other ants and as they go out back to the site of the damage and look for the culprit who caused that. Yeah, and now obviously you were doing it with a hole punch, but I'd assume if there was like a caterpillar or Katie did there, an army of Azteca ants is not a good day for you. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, at the very least, you will get immediately chased off the tree and at the worst, you will be slowly eaten alive <laughs> piece by piece. Right on. And then just thinking back to this idea that there could be a nitrogen benefit, it's so wild to think that a plant not only has bodyguards to protect it against its herbivores, it can then indirectly consume the nitrogen from its herbivores. That's uh, yes. <laughs> intense, man. Yeah, it's a little payback, uh, evolutionary payback there, something like that. I love it. So, okay, these trees can get pretty tall, and the ones you described as, uh, you know, what you selected for were not insignificant trees by any means. Are you up in, like, the canopy doing this research, or do you uh, have to finagle something else? Yeah, so for most of my studies, I am pretty much limited by a 10-foot ladder. So all <laughs> the, the studies that I've mentioned so far are just me getting up at the very top of a ladder and introducing the different manipulations up there. Uh, maybe introducing an intruder or hole punching the leaves. But so, so that's what the main body of my dissertation has been on these medium trees. Mm -hmm. But in my very last chapter, 
I thought, well, you know, there's so much size variation that I'm missing in this medium size range. So I decided to not only look at smaller saplings uh, and how incipient colonies behave, but I also wanted to quantify for the first time some of these giant trees mm. and assuming giant colonies that like I said before, I was limited by about eight meters is the very tallest I could get with a 10 foot ladder. And occasionally I would have to balance that ladder on the rim of a truck bed. <laughs> so <laughs> it was really, really finagled some of those because yeah. they grow fast. So yeah. at the beginning of the field season, they're within your reach. And by the end, it's <laughs> you can barely, you know. So anyway, these giant trees can grow up to 20, 25 meters, which is more than double, sometimes triple my maximum height with the ladder. Jeez. Uh, so I was really lucky to work with one of my fellow grad students here and get a collaborative grant. And we were actually able to rent one of these cherry pickers, nice. uh, one of these boom lifts to take us to the tops of these trees to try and quantify some of the ants behavior up there. That's exciting. Yeah, it was so exciting. It was two days only. So uh, we really had to prioritize and make sure everything was exactly how it could be to maximize our gain from sure. renting these trucks. But the problem that I've run into, before, like why I haven't done this before is, you know, I can't climb the tree because then, you know, it's all this jostling that the ants will respond to. <laughs> uh, so that's, you know, since I'm studying their behavior, I have to be as, you know, non-influencing as I can be. And I can't drop down from taller trees because these are trees that are living in gaps mm. in disturbed areas. So there's nothing above them. So, yeah, the, the cherry picker was the only option. And it that was really an amazing experience being able to control this little <laughs> basket you know, up to the very tops of some of these trees that I've I've only dreamt about getting up there for the last five, six years. Yeah. And seeing, basically, I, I haven't quantified all the data and all the videos, but anecdotally, just by watching the trials, there is as much behavioral variation between colonies as there are in the medium trees. Hmm. So way up there at the top of the trees, some, some colonies don't really respond. They're docile. They're pretty neutral, whereas other colonies just flood the black in the trunk. Wow. If you will, with the ant bodyguards. Yeah. I mean, even outside of the having studied this for so long, just having that perspective on larger trees must have been pretty breathtaking because that's a view most humans don't get of the forest. Yeah, it was it was absolutely stunning. It, it was it was almost hard to stay focused because it was <laughs> just so exhilarating. Uh, it, it almost felt like uh, I don't know if you've ever been in up in one of these trucks before, but it, it almost felt like a Ferris wheel that you could control. So it, it had this sort of like stomach dropping rise when you would go <laughs> up, but you could really stretch that arm in any direction or height. And uh, it was it was truly exhilarating. Neat. Yeah, I can imagine. OK, now you mentioned that these colonies have their own kind of collective personality. I mean, what does that translate to for the tree itself and what's influencing that? I mean, why would you have super aggressive ants in one regard and not aggressive ants in another regard. That seems kind of counterintuitive for a bodyguard situation. Yeah, absolutely. The first thing I measured was what kind of consequence does it have for the tree? And indeed, I when I measured the amount of leaf damage on the trees, 
I found that colonies that had much more aggressive and active personalities, their trees had much less leaf damage, much more pristine, preserved leaves. Hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. That's a pretty intuitive result. Right. But it was really nice to, to see that perhaps <laughs> – you know, th this is a consequence of collective personality. Yeah. However, the, the directionality of that trend is just observational. So it's still unknown whether or not the colony personality influenced the amount of leaf damage or that perhaps the amount of leaf damage then sort of had less photosynthetic area and the trees were not able to provide as much food bodies and therefore the colony maybe didn't have as much energy reserves and so they were just didn't respond as well by some constraint huh. okay and that's a good point to bring up is this idea of directionality because it kind of becomes this chicken and an egg scenario it may seem really straightforward that the more aggressive these ants are the less damages the tree is going to get but through time how does that change and like you said if the tree is losing photosynthetic organs that might not translate back to providing food for these ants, and therefore the uh, situation might not be as um, uh, tight. Absolutely, yeah. And it might not be one or the other, but it might be this feedback loop mm. where something tips the scale either from on the ants' end or the plants' end, and they get less food bodies, and so they're less aggressive, and so then there's more plant damage, and so then there's even fewer food bodies. And you get these really stark differences maybe over months or years between these colonies. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's amazing to put all of your energy into something and know a system so well and then to realize just how many more questions you're generating each and every step yeah. you take. Absolutely. It's a career's worth of questions that I've come up with that I, I just I, I'm, I'm still just fascinated to learn. I, I want to stick with this system as, as long as I can. Right on. And it's, I mean, it sounds like an amazing system to be studying. And then, you know, just thinking of all of the other instances in which plants and ants have teamed up, just the variations on that theme and what the driving factor mm. is, it's, uh, you've got quite the career ahead of you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Right yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Cool. So what's on the horizon? I mean, obviously you're finishing up, you're starting to write. I mean, what are the next steps for you and what do you hope uh, or what are you thinking is going to come out of this? Yeah, so I've published one of my papers so far, which details that collective personality and its influence on the leaf damage. And then I have three subsequent papers that I'm working on this semester. And I'm also trying to defend this semester. So that this is uh, like my last semester in grad school, which is uh, exciting and terrifying yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I'm surprised you're even talking to me right now with all that <laughs> on your plate. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. But I I don't have anything solidified yet, but I hope to get back to the rainforest and answer some more of these outstanding questions that I have uh, about the system. A lot having to do with what might be driving these differences between colonies' personality types. Yeah, do you have any uh, thoughts on that, or is that too early to say? Well, it, it seems like from my – so I did a, a this large-scale greenhouse experiment where – one of my hypotheses that might be contributing to the ants personality is their resource availability. You know, ants with more resources might have the luxury of being more aggressive, you know, less constrained by uh, energetic costs and things like this. 
And so thinking about resource availability in ants that live in plants is really interesting because they get most of their resources from the plant. Right. And then the plant gets most of its resources from either the soil or the sun. And so I did this big greenhouse experiment where I started looking at soil nutrients and its effect on colony personality. And I basically found that if you so, – so it, it was sort of a large-scale experiment because I looked at the behavior, these personalities of these colonies in the field over the course of a few months. And then I harvested those trees, opened them up. This time I didn't kill the ants, but I transplanted those colonies into a greenhouse. Ooh. I grew those cecropia trees from seeds from – fruits of a single tree that I found in the rainforest. And so all the trees in the greenhouse at least had the same mother, probably different fathers to limit variation in that capacity. And then started fertilizing half of the plants and left half of the plants unfertilized. I came back six months later, looked at personality of those ants and saw how it changed. And then again, four months after that to see how it may have changed from the intermediate phase in the greenhouse. 10 months later from the their actual field measurements. And so what I found was soil nutrients tends to so it's sort of a complex result. So it's not it's not like so here here's like my best attempt at explaining <laughs> it right now. Colonies they have transplanted to the greenhouse, their personality the structure of their personality completely shifts. Hmm. So in the field all of these traits were sort of correlated in the same direction. If you responded strongly to the phlegmatic, then you responded strongly to the leaf damage and all the other traits. But in the greenhouse, everything's jumbled. Like you respond strongly to one, but not the other, and you respond strongly to the third one, but not a fourth one. And so that structure was totally basically destroyed. Hmm. And then the, what happened was the variation in those behavior traits was really reduced in the plants that weren't fertilized. So basically all the ants converged on sort of a single phenotype in plants that were not fertilized, whereas plants that did get fertilization, those colonies' personalities were able to flourish and sort of had the whole range that you would see in the field. Hmm. Uh, they have really docile or really aggressive or somewhere in between, whereas the ones that didn't get nutrients were all sort of right in the middle. Wow. What a dynamic so, yeah, system. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's sort of, uh, yeah, that's going to take a while just to piece apart how, how to tell that story in a really um, concise way. Yeah. And just to think about the way that the growing conditions and like you said, the soil, the nutrients, all of that can then affect the vitality of the tree, which affects the vitality of the ants, which then feeds back to the tree. I mean, wow. Yeah. You really do have a, a lifetime of work ahead of you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that's cool, man. Well, if any of the listeners want to check out more about your work and see your, what I uh, admit is one of the most beautiful websites I've ever seen, how do they uh, find you? Thank you. Uh, you can find me at aztecasucropia.com. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm shocked you got that, but uh, congratulations on that domain name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I was shocked too. But uh yeah, it worked out pretty well. <laughs> well, right on, man. I really appreciate taking a time out of your schedule. I know it's uh, really stressful for end of PhD grad students to take any time, but this is really fascinating, and I think the listeners are going to enjoy it. So thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Great. Me too, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
And uh, yeah, I look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, keep me posted. You're welcome back anytime. I think every I speak for everyone when I say we want to know more. Sounds good. Cool. All right, thanks, man. Yep, cheers. All right, that about does it. How cool is that study system? How cool does that work sound? I think Peter's got a pretty interesting project and a great future ahead of him. You definitely need to go check out his website. It is a gorgeous delve into his science and his overall appreciation and passion for this system really bleeds through. That's aztecasercropia.com. Go check it out. And uh, he's even got videos, so if you want to see this stuff playing out in real time, see what he gets to see on a day-to-day basis, do yourself a favor and go look at his website. All right, again, indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Go pick up a sticker, help benefit the North American Orchid Conservation Center. And if you want to support this podcast, just head on over to patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Finally, please stay tuned. We've got so many cool things in the works, and I, I just it's so hard for me not to spoil the surprise every time I record these intros and outros. But the best way to do that is to click subscribe, and while you click subscribe, give us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. All right, everyone, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios.